0: You're listening to 1968 in Hindsight, a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to
1: bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. My name is Jason Steinhauer. And my name is Paul Steggy. In this podcast mini-series, we'll be taking a look at key issues facing our world today and showing that to better understand them, we have to look back to 1968. A closer look at that iconic year can help us to think about these issues in new ways and perhaps get us one step closer to finding solutions. In this episode, The final in our season on
0: 1968, we're taking a step back to not think about politics, war,
1: or pop culture, but the planet. Today, the future of our planet is the subject of ongoing debate among scientists, world leaders, and ordinary people. There are serious questions about the health of the globe, the sustainability of the planet, and whether we are irreparably harming the only known world that is hospitable to life.
0: But where did this environmental and planetary consciousness come from? How is it that we, as a population, came to wrestle with these existential questions about our environment, our planet,
2: and threats to our existence? My name is Paul Rozier. I am the Mary M. Burley Chair in American History. That's the voice of our Villanova colleague, Paul Rozier. I teach a wide range of courses on environmental history. the the first wave of environmental action takes place during the 1900s, 1910s under President Roosevelt. During the 1930s, the federal government initiates the Civilian Conservation Corps, which ended up employing roughly 3 million Americans. And and I think they form one of the backbones of the modern environmental movement. In fact, uh, some of them say before Earth Day, there was the CCC. One of those Americans was a young Pennsylvania biologist named Rachel Carson. Rachel Carson began her study of biology uh, in the 1930s. She gets uh, hired by the Fish and Wildlife Service, and she eventually turns her attention to the problem of pesticide use. Carson would
1: begin work on what would become a landmark book, Silent Spring, published in 1962.
2: She's influenced by Paul Shepard, who wrote a series of articles in the late 1950s. So she undertakes this massive project. She embeds it in a narrative about how we wake up one day and we don't hear the birds singing. Um, She makes this argument that in in the world today, there is no time, meaning we don't have time to fix these problems because of the way that they proliferate. And she explains very clearly that when we poison nature, we poison ourselves. Carson also established an important political precedent. On a political side, she creates this notion of the right to know, that we have a right to know whether... The water that we're drinking or the air we're breathing is is killing us. Silent Spring had a massive influence on 1960s environmentalism. It was translated into 20 languages, I think, and it was also replicated in the sense that England uh, English scientists did their own study of pesticides. Uh, the Dutch did their own study and so forth. So it really created a kind of a global movement for understanding of this issue. The fate of the planet and its population was an issue on people's minds. There were a number of books published uh, after her book that also reached the the public. Death of the Sweet Waters, A Moment in the Sun, a report on the deteriorating quality of the American environment, Our Polluted World, Can Man Survive, The Frail Ocean, and then, of course, The Population Bomb in 1968. 1968,
1: a Stanford University professor, Dr. Paul Ehrlich, published a new book called
2: The Population Bomb. So he's a Stanford biologist. He's uh, tuned into this discourse, you know, thinking about some of these other books about survivability. These were his opening sentences. Quote, The battle
1: to feed all humanity is over. In the 1970s and 1980s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death. Nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate. He went on. Nothing could be more misleading to our children than our present affluent society. They will inherit a totally different world, a world in which the standards, politics and economics of the past decade are dead. We are today involved in the events leading to famine and catastrophe. Tomorrow we may be destroyed by them.
2: amount of time that Americans start spending on environmental issues, the number of people who join Sierra Club, Environmental Defense Fund, World Wildlife Fund, that are really taking shape in the 1960s and becoming more political. So I think it puts politicians um, in the late 60s in the position of having to pay attention to these issues and what voters are increasingly asking them to pay attention to.
1: Between 1963 and 1968, Presidents Kennedy and Johnson signed into law almost 300 conservation and beautification measures, including the Clean Water Act of 1960, the Wilderness Act of 1964, the Clean Air Acts of 1963 and 1967, the Water Quality Act of 1965.
0: That growing consciousness was spurred in part by the maturity of the U.S. space program. The United States and Soviet Union were exploring space and beginning to see that there was a large cosmos beyond our planet, and thus beyond any one state's control. And it was in 1968, for the first time, that the world saw itself as a small blue bulb amid the vast darkness of space.
3: My name is Sibylle Machat. I'm the head of a massive program called Cultural Language Media at the Europa-Universität Flensburg in Germany. I'm currently spending most of my research time working on a book that looks at how the planet Earth was depicted in children's books.
1: In December 1968, NASA's Apollo 8 mission headed toward the moon with three astronauts on board, Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders, it's
3: the first people leaving Earth orbit, so it'll be the first human seeing the entire Earth and being able to photograph that. And also there is this this dangerous moment like I asked before I, I gave this interview, I asked just random people who were alive, my parents and friends of my parents. I told them what I was doing and every single one told me how scared everyone was that something would go wrong when the astronauts were on the other side of the moon and they wouldn't come back. So that had a huge impact. And I think that is why people remember this so much, because there was this emotional impact connected to it.
0: The three astronauts left the Earth's gravitational pull and entered into the moon's orbit.
3: When the astronauts arrive in lunar orbit, they have to do all these sort of these uh, TV programs from space. They do six in total and two are from lunar orbit. And they have to describe what they think the moon is like. And they really realize, I mean, we all, Kind of new beforehand, but they really realize how how bleak and dead it is.
0: On Christmas Eve 1968, Anders, Borman, and Lovell emerge from behind the moon's dark side to see an astounding sight.
3: They look at the earth and they see it hanging in the distance. And I think they, they realize and they talk about how how special and how fragile it is. So it's seeing how dead the moon is that makes people realize how how rare the Earth is. It was the most beautiful, heart catching sight of my life, one that sent a torrent of nostalgia of sheer homesickness surging through me. It was the only thing in space that had any color to it. Everything else was either black or white, but not the Earth. That's Frank Foreman. An
0: exquisite blue sphere
1: hanging in the blackness of space. In a telecast on Christmas Eve, the astronauts showed the world the first images of the lunar surface, while reciting lines from the book of Genesis.
3: I looked at the astronaut biographies that they've written themselves and what they've said about this impact what they were actually thinking they would do and then what in retrospect became the most relevant part of, of um, Apollo 8 to them and they all say we were sent it was lunar oriented we were going to the moon but what happened is that we saw the earth. And I think Apollo 8 is a tipping point for that. It is when um, Robert Poole, historian Robert Poole, says that this marks the tipping point when the sense of the Space Ace flips from what it meant to space to what it actually means for Earth.
1: Five days later, NASA released the photograph of the entire Earth.
3: They picked up in the weekly magazines and the glossy color ones in early January. And all the papers that look at them or the Magazines they say similar things about them. The Sunday Denver Post writes No man ever before has looked at the world in one piece and told us about it. Perhaps with a new understanding will come reverence for our planetary home and for the uniqueness of life. The Los Angeles Times writes In retrospect, a remarkable effect of the Apollo eight moon voyage was not so much its capacity to draw men's gaze outwards as its powerful force in turning their thoughts inward on their own condition and that of their troubled planet. The feet that should have been the perfect object for extroverts made introverts of us all. The Christian Science Monitor. Um, We should cherish our home planet. Men must conserve the Earth's resources. They must protect their planetary environment from spreading pollution. They have no other sanctuary in the solar system. This, perhaps, is the most pertinent message for all of us that the astronauts bring back from the moon.
2: It's that notion, almost ironic notion, of going into space and making us think more carefully about the space that we've left. You link it to these um, notions of contaminated spaces or some of these books and this sense of real crisis that grips the nation in the late 1960s. The photograph taken
0: by Anders is today known as Earthrise. It marked a profound transformation in how humans could envision and depict their place in the universe.
3: This is the time when John McConnell in San Francisco really starts thinking about um, having an Earth Day, which they have in 1970, March 21st. So that's one of the two Earth Days you have. The other one is the one that grows out of Senator Gaylord Nelson's environmental teaching. That's the one we still have today on April 22nd. And I would say this this understanding of the Earth as this fragile borderless, that's also something the astronauts talk about. They say we can't really see the borders anymore once you have a certain distance. It's just blue and brown and that's all you have. Um, that sort of influences these men into thinking about um, the Earth as a planet and starting something like this.
2: People start to think is that our environment is we can't take it for granted. They go from the local to the global and think our planet isn't um, sustainable or it's it's uh, vulnerable to these things. And so I think the photo itself just provides people with a, a window onto that idea of the planet's health and um, makes people think
3: globally. I would say it is one of the two most significant photographs in connection to the environmental movement that has ever been taken, if not the most significant one. I, I would say that absolutely still holds true 50 years later.
1: Because people could now, for the first time, see the entire planet, a new vision of the Earth was also possible. They could see it as one planet with one future, and that future needed to be planned and cared for with
2: action in order to ensure that it even arrived. If you looked at this, the graph of the number of Americans who were joining environmental groups or paying attention to the environment, certainly 1968 would be um, a high year, but it's really not until 1969, Santa Barbara oil spill and the Cuyahoga river fire. And then 1970 with Earth Day that you have this sort of broad national consensus. Right looking at photographs of Earth Day, you have a lot of people with that image. We
3: have the first Earthrise photograph taken by not by a human, but by a machine in August 66. We have the lunar orbiter going and it takes pretty much exactly the same photograph that the astronauts will take um, a little over two years later. It's in black and white and it doesn't have much of a reception. Some people see it, but it's not comparable at all. So I would say the important thing is that it has to be humans talking about the earth. It isn't the photograph, it's the human experience.
0: By 1968, the notion of taking corrective measures to ensure the sustainability of the planet had been established, whether in the form of government mandates or collective action. Two years later, in 1970, President Richard Nixon created the Environmental Protection Agency.
1: Today, we may take for granted that we have access to images from space, that we understand ourselves as a solitary, life-filled planet in an otherwise vast and lifeless cosmos but it's only within the past 50 years, a blip on the radar in our thousands-year history. The environmental consciousness that exists today, while having precedents long before the 1960s, owes a portion of its shape and form to that decade.
2: I think it's important to remember how much work, how much effort uh, it took to get our environment where it is today. If we look at China today, China is what the United States looked like in the 1960s in terms of air pollution and water pollution and, and the, the effect on people's health. Um, and that is a model that hopefully we will never see again, but it is contingent upon people um, employing that notion of we have the right to know and we have the right to uh, a clean environment. For all the talk about human division and conflicts
0: in 1968, we are left with a question. What does it mean to all share the same planet with the same fate? Since 1968, we have been able to ask that question. We have yet to come to a consensus on the answer.
1: You've been listening to 1968 in Hindsight a podcast that uses scholarship and conversation to bring historical perspective to contemporary issues. 1968 in Hindsight
0: is produced by the LePage Center for History in the
1: Public Interest at Villanova University. For more information on the sources used in this episode or any of our previous episodes, please visit our website, lepage.villanova.edu.
0: Thanks for listening.